Thank you, Martha. Thank you, Paul and choir. Church, we continue in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, there were a couple of announcements I intended to make and missed along the way. Uh, the first is there's a men's breakfast this coming Saturday at 8 a.m. in the fellowship hall. And uh, if you could let the church office know that you're coming, that'll help us get an estimated count. Uh, you could do that by using your sign me up card and just writing your name and men's breakfast on it and handing it to an usher as you exit, or Brother Mike, would you mind standing for just a moment? You could just grab Mike on your way out and say, hey Mike, I'm planning to be at that breakfast um, at the end of the service, and he'll jot your name down or make a little tally mark or whatever. We just want to make sure we get a a decent estimate so we have enough biscuits biscuits and gravy. It's a very important priority in our lives, right, for Saturday. Uh, And the second thing I meant to mention and failed to mention is that our children's ministry is doing scripture memory, and I'm not sure if we have that slide or not, Tim. Do we have that slide in there? Well, it's 1 Peter 5.10, 1 Peter 5.10, and I, I want to cover that every week, um, so uh, the month of February, because that's their memory verse for the month of February. I don't think I have the same translation as our, there it is, bam, look at that. Thank you, brother. So would you, would you leave it on the screen for us? Can, is that possible? Um, uh, what I'd like to do is just read this together. We're going to do it every Sunday for the month of February, and we're going to trust God uh, that he's going to use that to help us throughout the week to remember, oh yeah, 1 Peter 5.10, and maybe look at it, and by the end of February, maybe we can have it memorized. Is there a way we can make that thing just stop there? You're not sure. All right. Well, this is, this is risky. All right, I tell you what, this Sunday, I'm just going to read it for you, but next Sunday, we'll get the slide back in the presentation. Uh, 1 Peter 5.10 says this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a good, that's a good verse, isn't it? Th- this world is, is not the world that those who know Christ will live in forever. He's going to make it new. He's going to renew it. He's going to come again. And he will complete the good work that he started in us. And really, that's, that's a lot of what we've been learning in Hebrews, right? The book of Hebrews is written in the, the context of a church that's facing persecution or intensifying adversity for their faith in Jesus. It's no longer socially or culturally or politically expedient to worship him where they live. No one's putting, you know, the little ichthus or the fish on their business card Right? If you drive down the roads, you don't see somebody advertising, we're a Christian business. That's the last thing they want to let you know. Not because they aren't proud of Christ, but because they don't want you to come and mess with them or impact or ruin their lives. And so it's getting harder and harder to follow Jesus in the place to which the book of Hebrews is being written. So the costs of following Christ are rising which means that the temptation to fall away from him is increasing. And we've seen that from chapter five, uh, chapter 4 into 5 into 6 as the, as the author has sort of interrupted his argument that Jesus is our eternal great high priest, our forever perfect high priest, who is a bit like Melchizedek was all the way back in Genesis 14 to Abraham. So that's the argument the author's been making. And this is going to be probably one of the most heady sermons that I've ever preached. Not because I want it to be, it's just it's the nature of the text. So we've got to apply our minds 
to the text this morning, all right? So the author has urged us to keep trusting Jesus, no matter how costly it is, and we should do that because there's no other priest who is perfect and forever like Jesus. So where else would you go to have access to the presence of God than Jesus? And the answer is nowhere. You certainly wouldn't go back to the Levitical priesthood and offer sacrifices in the temple. That's going to do you no good. So that's the big argument that's being made. And he's going to dive back into that argument in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. And he's going to show us that the priesthood of Jesus is greater than the entire Levitical priesthood, the temple priesthood, temple on earth priesthood, which means that abandoning Jesus would be abandoning the salvation that we need and which is possible only through Christ, the forever great, perfect high priest. Would you hear with me the word of God? Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, Without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, observe how great this man was, meaning Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, again meaning Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any, any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Got it? Clear? See y'all. Take care. All right, now we're going we're gonna to dive in. We're going to have some fun this morning, but let's, uh, let's pray that God would, would help us understand, okay? God in heaven, thank you for your word. Your word is true, and you sanctify us with it. God, you set us apart as your people by the hearing and the comprehending and the applying of ourselves to your word, enabled by your Holy Spirit. And God, we trust that you're going to help us today uh, to glean what it is you want for us from, from this important text of Scripture. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This is, as I said, one of the more compelling and challenging portions of the New Testament. To understand it, we've got to remember that the author wants us to see the Old Testament itself, right? He's talking to people who think they want to run back to the Old Testament, and he's like, you can't run back to the Old Testament and run away from Jesus because the Old Testament itself shows us what I'm trying to show you, which is Jesus is better, right? Throw away the New Testament, which is a really bad idea, 
but do it for hypothetically throw the New Testament away and go only to the Old Testament and the Old Testament is going to leave you going, this is incomplete, I need a Savior like Jesus. Y'all tracking? So the Old Testament itself shows us that the, the Levitical priesthood was always meant to give way to someone greater. The Old Covenant always anticipated the New Covenant, a covenant in which the people of God would be rescued by a son and a suffering servant who willingly gave himself as the sacrifice needed to pay for our sins. A priest and a king who always ruled his people and represented God's people before God himself in a new heavens and a new earth. And in this text, we see that Christ has a priesthood that is from an entirely different order than that of the Levitical priesthood. He's functioning on an entirely different eternal plane. Not a plane of mortality, but of a plane of eternality. And he has a priesthood then, as the end of verse 20 in chapter 6 tells us, in the order of Melchizedek. So this morning, to appreciate the great high priesthood of Jesus, to get our minds a bit around it, He's going to go back to the example of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, and he's going to explain that in light of Jesus. So this morning, for us to have a deeper appreciation of the great high priesthood of Jesus, we've got to recognize first, Jesus is greater than Abraham because he's the king priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we'll, we'll tease that out in just a moment. And secondly... We must recognize Jesus is greater than the entire Levitical priesthood. As I shared a few weeks ago, Melchizedek appears briefly in Genesis 14. The kings of the east go to war against the kings of Canaan and they kidnap Lot, Abraham's nephew. So Abraham mobilizes 318 men, defeats all the eastern kings. Abraham was a a pretty amazing guy. I couldn't think of how to express that. But he, he, was, he was a tough guy. He gets 318 guys together, defeats the eastern kings, rescues Lot, and takes a lot of loot in the process. In the Valley of the Kings, the king of Sodom wants to work out a compromise with Abraham, but he refuses to compromise with the king of Sodom, which is a foreshadowing of the fact that he won't compromise with evil, right? Sodom, a few chapters later, falls is judged. So Abraham seems to be, in a sense, the top dog in the land of Canaan. He's got power even greater than the other kings. He's not called a king, but he whoops up on the kings who take his nephew. But in the middle of his negotiation with the king of Sodom, without any explanation at all, Melchizedek just shows up. As a priest to God Most High, Genesis 14, 18. And he brings out bread and wine, seemingly celebrating Abraham's victory. Then he blesses Abraham, saying he is blessed by, get this, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. What's the significance of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth? He's the only God. He's the one true God. He's the one God over all the other gods. He's the God that made it all. He's the God we need to know. This God, Abraham is blessed by through Melchizedek, king of righteousness, 
king of peace, priest to the most high God. So the author of Hebrews reminds us of this story back in Genesis to make this argument. We're going to get down into some of the details, but I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Okay, Here's the forest. He's arguing with people steeped in the Old Testament. They know the Old Testament. Here's what he's saying. If there's a king priest who brings God's blessing to Abraham and gets tithes from Abraham, why in the world are you having a difficult time seeing that Jesus is greater than Abraham or the Levites who come from him? Go all the way back to Genesis. There's somebody bigger and better and badder and greater than Abraham, and his name is Melchizedek. Yeah, we know all about Abraham, we know that you're a descendant of Abraham, but you need to pay attention to this king priest who comes before Abraham and blesses Abraham and brings God's blessing to him. And if you ignore him, you're going to think that you can ignore Jesus, and you cannot. Alright, that's the big idea. Now we'll try to get into the weeds a little bit. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type of... Of Christ. He's a, he's a foreshadowing. He's an example of what Jesus would be like. So, first, we're, we're going to dive into some ways that Jesus is like Melchizedek so that we can understand what it means that he's a great king priest like him. First, like Melchizedek, Jesus is both a king and a priest. He's not either or, he's both and. In Israel, no king could be priest and no priest could be king because they had to come from different tribes. Kings were from the tribe of Judah, priests from the tribe of Levi, but God's salvation requires one like Melchizedek, who is both king and priest in one person, qualified to rule over God's people and to make people God's people by interceding for them, by being the one who goes between God and man as both man and God. So there's a problem inherent in Judaism, how are you going to get a king and a priest in one person? In fact, the text that Brother Paul read this morning from Isaiah 6 begins in this way, in the year King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah died because he tried to be the Messiah. He tried to take upon himself the priesthood. He went into the temple, into the holy place, thinking that as king, well, I'll just go ahead and be priest, and I'll merge these two things together, and I'll be the Messiah. And God struck him with leprosy and sent him outside the camp. And in the year, not coincidentally, that King Uzziah died, what did Isaiah see? He saw a king, and the train of his robe filled the temple. His throne was in the holy place. He saw Jesus. And the whole earth was full of his glory. That, that day's coming, by the way, when our king returns and the whole earth is declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah has a vision of the Messiah to come. And only Jesus is the one who's qualified to be both priest and king. He's king through the line of Judah, but he is priest through the forever order of Melchizedek. He's not a priest through his biology. He's a priest by divine appointment. Second, Jesus, like Melchizedek, is qualified by God to give blessing 
from God. Remarkably, while blessings come through Abraham the patriarch, do you see that word in verse 4, patriarch? That's the highest rank, it's the highest level of recognition in Jewish life. You can't get any higher than Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. But Abraham's not Melchizedek. He's blessed by Melchizedek, priest to the Most High God. This is important. God's blessings come through Abraham only because they came to Abraham. They they had to come to Abraham from God through a priest in order for the blessings that come through Abraham to be valid at all, which means Abraham is less than God's appointed priest. This ultimately means that blessing comes from God. It is God who's qualified to give blessing from God that we can know the presence of God. Now, many Jews and Hebrews at the time of Christ believed that God, in a sense, owed them something because they were born Jewish. Well, I'm a descendant of Abraham. Abraham's my father. I'm good. I'm one of the elect. I'm one of the chosen. I'm going to be okay. And what does Jesus say to that argument? Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. I mean, he goes for the jugular, doesn't he? Don't make that argument. If you're making that argument, you're missing the whole point. Don't say that. For I say to you, That from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Salvation is in the promised Son of God and in Him alone. There's no other way to be saved. Not even Abraham could have been saved apart from the blessing of God that came through a king and a priest. We have no standing before God because of our biology, not one of us. We only have access to God through the blood of Jesus, our King and forever High Priest. Third, Jesus is greater than Abraham. Prior to Abraham and above Abraham stands Melchizedek. We know this because verse 7 says, The lesser is blessed by the greater. Who's the lesser in this? It's Abraham. Who's the one doing the blessing? It's it's Melchizedek. And because Melchizedek is the one that blesses Abraham, the author of Hebrews says you should not be surprised that there's a priest and a king who stands outside and over and above Judaism through whom God's blessings must come. His name is Jesus. If we have any doubts that there's a king-priest who's greater than Abraham, Abraham wasn't confused about it. And this is the point that he makes when he says, look, Abraham brought him a tenth of everything. Now in Hebrews, in my translation, it adds a tenth of the spoils. But in Genesis and in Hebrews, it just says a tenth of all. So 10% of whatever Abraham had at this point in his life, the Bible tells us Abraham just voluntarily gave it to Melchizedek. Here you go. Now, you got to th- think about this. Abraham has just defeated every other king that's come against the people of Canaan. 
Sodom, the king of Sodom says, hey, let's work out a little deal here. And he's like, no way, I'm not compromising with you. But then this king of peace and this king of righteousness, who's priest of the most high God, shows up. And without discussion, Abraham's like, let me lay before you 10% of all. And not just any 10%, by the way, the 10% of, do you see it there, of the choicest spoils. Abraham gave Melchizedek not 10%, but his best 10%. Right? It's, it's 10% of his possessions. So if you could line up 10 things that he owned, he looked at him and he said, let me find the one that's the best out of 10 and give that to you. Which means it wasn't 10% of his net income. It was 10% of his best. He, he didn't have to hear a sermon on generous giving. He did not ask God if giving was based on net or gross. He just knew, this guy who's bringing me the blessings of God is going to get my absolute best. God has a great king. And I have the privilege of bringing him my best as an offering to God of myself. Because God has blessed me through Jesus, his great king and priest. Fifth, Jesus, like Melchizedek, has an enduring priesthood. In verse 3, the author observes that the priesthood of Melchizedek has nothing to do with ancestry or one's biological descent. We find no mention of a genealogy for Melchizedek in Genesis 14. There's no birth date, there's no death date. From the vantage point of the story... He enters into the story as a priest to the Most High God. We don't hear about his birth and his calling and any of that. We just, boom, there he is, Melchizedek. He just shows up. He enters into the story as a priest to the Most High God. And from the vantage point of our knowledge of the story, he is always a priest to the Most High God. We never know Melchizedek as anyone other than king and priest to God who blesses God's people. In a similar but even greater way, Jesus is God's forever high priest. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God, we are told, but Jesus is the Son of God. So as the eternal Son of God, Jesus likewise had no mother or father, right? He existed before his birth. He existed before his incarnation. So Jesus, as the Son of God, likewise had no mother or father. Now, we know that he came down at Christmas so that he could be made flesh within Mary's womb so that he could take on our humanity without taking on our sin, which comes through Adam. But Jesus is a lot like Melchizedek. As the Son of God, no mother, no father. As Jesus, he has a mother, but no father. He's the eternal Son of God who added to himself our humanity to rescue us with his blood and forever represent us as our great high priest. Notice what verse 2 says about Melchizedek. First, his name. Did you know the names in the Old Testament are very important? They are highly symbolic. Many of them, uh, knowing what the name means often helps us understand what the, the significance of the text. And the name Melchizedek is not like, oh, you know, it could have been Tom could have been Hank, could have been Larry. No, 
The name Melchizedek means in Hebrew, king of righteousness. All right, so this one who comes that's a priest is also a king who is righteous, who rules and reigns in righteousness. Secondly, the place where he reigns is Salem or Shalom, which means peace. So he's a king who leads in righteousness over a place called peace. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Does that sound familiar? God's blessing comes from a king who is righteous and who dwells in a place called peace and who is a priest to the Most High God. Jesus is the one greater than Melchizedek. He is the true king of righteousness, the forever king of peace, the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the London Baptist Confession of 1689, one of the first Baptist confessions written in history, we read these words. Because of our estrangement from God, our distance from God, our separation from God, and because of the imperfection of our services at best, meaning we're sinners, we've been marred and distorted and tainted by sin, we need His priestly office, Jesus' priestly office, to reconcile us to God and render us acceptable to Him. Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek to offer us His blood so that we could know God forever on the basis of His sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate King of righteousness, the sinless Lamb of God, who gave his life so that we could have a share in it. Jesus is the son who came to serve us in his death, and he's been raised to life as God's forever king and priest who pleads his blood on our behalf so that we can live in, ple- in peace with God. Through the righteousness of Christ, we can have peace with God, and we can dwell in that place. Do you have peace with God today? Peace with God is available through Jesus, the King of righteousness, who died to substitute Himself so that you would not have to stand before God with your sin on you because He will take it in your place. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1.9 says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and there you will find peace. Those who want to live in peace must bring not just their treasure to God, but we must bring our sin-tattered lives to Jesus and let Him wash us clean by His bloody death, recognizing we deserve to die, but He did it for us, and allow Him to present us faultless before His Father, not on the basis of deeds we have done, but on the basis of His perfect life. And when that happens, the Spirit of God changes you and frees you and gives you peace and joy and liberty to worship God through Christ, the forever King of righteousness. When we have Jesus as our righteousness before God, we can live in peace with God. This morning, if you don't have peace, then run to Jesus for refuge. Flee your life of sin and run to Christ, the risen King and forever high priest. But secondly... We need to recognize that Jesus is greater than the entire Levitical priesthood. So first, the author of Hebrews says, look, 
Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham is the one who paid him tithes. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, so Abraham's lesser than Melchizedek. You got it? Check. Good. But then, what about the Levites? I mean, yes, Abraham, we get it. It's like, it's like he's anticipating a question in his readers' minds. You can almost hear the question, right? We get it. Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, but the Levites come a few generations after Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Levi. So what in the world does Melchizedek and his priesthood have to do with the Levites and their priesthood in the temple? And the answer is this, everything. The blessing of Abraham through Melchizedek and the gift Abraham gave to Melchizedek impact every single descendant of Abraham who comes after him. The Levitical priesthood was always secondary and subordinate to the priesthood of the Levites. Excuse me. Yeah, the Levitical priesthood was always secondary and subordinate to the order and the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is fulfilled in Christ. The Levites themselves should have recognized the superior priesthood of Melchizedek. Because they too, now this is, this is going to get interesting, because in a sense, they too paid tithes to Melchizedek when Abraham gave a tithe to him. Let me say that again. Because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, it's like the Levites also paid a tithe to Abraham. Got that basic argument? Now I'm going to explain how based on what Hebrews says. In verses 9 and 10, Hebrews argues that Levi was biologically present in Abraham when he encountered the great king and priest, Melchizedek. This is why one might say that even Levites who received tithes from other Israelites also paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham because Levi and Levi's offspring were in the loins, Hebrews tells us, of his ancestor Abraham when Melchizedek met him. I'm looking forward later today when my son and daughter ask me, what are loins, daddy? So the, 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 potential for and the reality of the birth of Levi are already present in father Abraham. And so when we get three generations down the line and all the generations down the line to come and there's this apparatus of a priesthood that's going on, it's still subordinate to, it's under the ultimate priesthood that exists in the order of Melchizedek which came before Abraham was ever on the scene. A little bit confusing, I know, but let me explain it to you this way. If you have an estate and you decide to leave a portion of your estate to someone other than your heirs, your local church, a charity, whatever, then for the generations to come after that, they are forever impacted financially by the fact that you chose to give a portion of your goods and wealth and retirement account, whatever else. They are forever impacted by that decision 
because you gave away some of your inheritance, some of your estate to someone else. Does that make sense? So, forever and always, we, we could get an accountant, we could get an actuary to add it up down through the generations and do it uh, adjusted by inflation. But for the rest of the lives of the people who are your offspring, however far down the line they go, if you choose to make a gift of your estate to someone other than your heirs, then your heirs have been impacted by that. Are y'all tracking? This is the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. Look, the Levites may not recognize that they fall under Melchizedek. They may not see that their priesthood is supposed to give way to the superior priesthood of Christ. They might be parading around the temple thinking how great they are and their priestly garments look so good. But there is a king of righteousness who is in the heavenly city of Salem. And everything they have, every blessing they get, it all flows from a king who doesn't get tithes just from Israelites. He's going to get a tribute from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Which, by the way, is a great reason to consider including the gospel and King Jesus in your estate planning. Because it is a testimony to the generations to come that granddaddy and grandma love Jesus more than everything. You want to, that's why it's called a last will and testament. It's supposed to give testimony to what really mattered in your life. So the Levites are clearly lesser than Melchizedek because they paid him tithes and because their tithes came from within the family. But there's a king named Melchizedek and a priest named Jesus who gets tribute and tithes from people all over the world. But there's another reason that Jesus is better than the Levites. The Levites die. You see that in verse 8? Now, I can't get too far ahead of myself because this is where the argument of Hebrews is going. But they, they have to make atonement for themselves. They have to wash themselves before they can even offer a sacrifice. And then they offer a sacrifice, and that doesn't count uh, for very long because then they got to come back the next year, and they got to offer a sacrifice again. And then the priest who offered that sacrifice, he dies, so we got to figure out who the next priest is. They die. Jesus, however, as priest in the order of Melchizedek, never dies. Melchizedek's death, is never recorded in the story. Now, we don't know if he died or not, or if he, like Enoch, walked with God and God took him. We're not exactly sure what happens to Melchizedek, but within the story, it's like his priesthood just stands there forever over Abraham and all the blessing that's going to come, waiting for its fulfillment. And that order, that forever priesthood, is fulfilled by Christ who comes, and he does die. But on the third day, he is raised from the grave, conquering death. And the promise of God for all who trust in this king and this priest is that he pleads his blood on behalf of his people, not just from Israel, not just from descended from Abraham, but from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and those who turn from their sin and they trust in him and devote their lives to displaying his glory and declaring his glory among the nations. They will be Saved by Jesus, the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace, the Great High Priest, to our Most High God. Now this morning, you might be like, okay, so what? 
I want to apply this text in three ways very briefly. First, we cannot understand who Jesus is or what it means to follow Him and trust in Him if we don't know the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews is making some deep Old Testament arguments. This is why we go through the gospel project in our children's and student ministry. We want our students, when they leave North Roanoke Baptist Church to wherever God is taking them, we want them to be familiar with the Old Testament so that they understand who Jesus is that saved them and they, they can defend him in any context, in any place, as the king and priest to the Most High God prophesied in the Old Testament. The Christian faith is a thinking faith. It requires intentional engagement of our minds. Jesus himself said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's an issue of the heart for sure. With all your soul and with all your mind. You cannot be a faithful follower of Christ and check your brains at the door and just come to church looking for a feeling. We need to know who our king is. Secondly, all that we are and all that we do is possible because of the blessing of God that comes through the priesthood of Jesus, our representative. This means that it doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian how many positions we've held, whatever we would put on our Christian resume that looks really good. All of that is great as long as we understand that it comes way under what Christ has done for us. Everything we say and do in the kingdom of God, every chair that we've ever moved, every Sunday school class we've ever taught, every business meeting we've ever sat through and yawned, whatever we've done in the kingdom of God, it's only because God first blessed us through Jesus Christ. And we must never lose sight of the fact that it's all about Him, not about us. And thirdly, to live at peace and in peace with God, we've got to give ourselves to Jesus, the King of Righteousness. If you need to return to living in peace with God, return to Jesus today. Stop making it about yourself and, making it, and instead make it about Christ. And if you've never known the joy and the freedom of having your sins forgiven through Jesus, then, then let today be the day that you fall on His mercy and on His grace. There's a church sign that I once saw. I'm not too keen on church signs, but this one caught my attention. It said, no Jesus, no peace. But if you know Jesus, you'll know peace. Do you have peace with God today? If not, let today be the day. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, as we prepare to sing, Lord, I ask that we would know peace with God that comes through Jesus Christ, the King of Righteousness. God, there's nothing that we could do to earn or deserve favor with you. Nothing we could do to earn or deserve knowing your beautiful, wonderful, glorious presence but you brought it down to us through the obedience and the sacrifice and now the, the ongoing intercession on our behalf of Jesus Christ, our King and Priest. So God, we give Him praise and we ask God that if there's anyone that needs peace from heaven today, that they would come and receive it in Jesus Christ. Amen.